You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon, Episode 3, Eastern Ambitions. Thanks for joining me. In case anyone missed it, last week I released a little bonus episode with a good story about Denmark and an announcement about a fundraiser for the show. The fundraiser has already gotten off to a great start, thanks to those of you who chipped in. Contributors will be picking a topic for an upcoming episode, and I've already gotten some great suggestions. If you want to get in on that, check out the fundraiser page at P-A-T- R-E-O-N dot com slash Age of Napoleon. Anyway, this is a big episode, so let's get to the topic at hand. I'm just going to pick up where we left off at the end of episode two, looking at what was going on around Europe during the 18th century. Try to keep some of those same themes from last episode in mind. The centralization of authority, royal absolutism, and the application of enlightenment principles to government. This episode, we're looking at Central and Eastern Europe. So I think we should start with the biggest power in that part of the world, the Habsburgs. Now, the Habsburgs were a family, not a country. Their heartland was Austria, and I'll probably refer to them as the Austrians as a shorthand. Austria wasn't much bigger in the 18th century than it is today, so a lot of what made the Habsburgs such an important power was that the head of the house also had a lot of other titles. On top of Austria, they were monarchs of most of the area of the modern-day Czech Republic, Hungary, Slovakia, a chunk of Romania, Croatia, Belgium, and that slice of northern Italy I mentioned last time. That's a pretty big chunk of territory taken altogether, but it's important to note this wasn't some politically unified empire. These territories were all legally separate, with their own local governments, institutions, and ruling elite. They just all happened to have the head of the House of Habsburg at the top of their government. This fractured empire represented a challenge for the Habsburgs. They controlled the largest amount of territory of any European power, but this complicated political status made their territories much harder to govern than any of the other powers. This meant that the Habsburgs weren't quite as powerful as they looked on paper. Throughout the Renaissance and early modern period, the Habsburgs were the undisputed paramount power in Eastern and Central Europe. By the 18th century, this had changed. Prussia rose up as a rival German state. The Austrians fought several wars to try to check Prussian power, and although they came close a couple times, they were never quite able to stamp out the upstart Prussians. It would not be until the 19th century that Prussia would fully eclipse Austria as the primary German-speaking power, but by Napoleon's time, the rivalry between these two states was well underway. Further to the east, the Habsburgs were also feeling uneasy about the rise of another great power, Russia. The Russians and the Habsburgs had been natural allies due to their mutual rivalries with the Ottoman Empire and Poland, 
But with their enemies in decline and Russian influence creeping west, the Austrians were starting to question the wisdom of that friendship. So, 18th century Austria was an old power, having trouble changing with the times and under pressure from rising new powers. But to their credit, they didn't give in to decline. The Habsburg Empire of the 18th century was not the moribund, decaying, sick man of Europe that would collapse at the end of World War I. Austria's first defeat at the hands of Prussia in the War of Austrian Succession in 1748 had stunned all of Europe and marked Prussia's arrival on the scene as a great power. The Habsburg armies were devastated, and they lost the province of Silesia, one of the richest and most important Habsburg possessions. The defeat stung, but the Austrian empress Maria Theresa used it as an opportunity to reform the government, and more importantly, the army. When Austria and Prussia faced off again six years later in the Seven Years' War, even Frederick the Great of Prussia, who disdained the Austrian military, was impressed by the improved performance of the Habsburg armies, admitting, quote, These are not the Austrians of old. Still, even these new and improved Austrians couldn't land a knockout blow against the outnumbered Prussians. The Habsburgs never retook Silesia. Maria Theresa was succeeded by her son, Joseph II, in 1780. Maria Theresa had been a cautious, pragmatic reformer. Joseph was a reformer too, but he was anything but cautious. Joseph was perhaps the most radical of all of the enlightened absolutists. Or at least he would have been. Joseph wrote his own epitaph, and I think it's a pretty good summary of his rule. He wrote, Here lies Joseph II, who failed in all he undertook. Joseph issued over 6,000 edicts in less than 10 years in office. He reduced the power of the church, the guilds, and the nobility, and granted new rights to peasants and serfs. He founded state-run secular schools, universities, and military academies. Joseph reformed taxation and internal tariffs, attempting to turn all of the Habsburg territories into one unified trade zone. The central government in Vienna was strengthened, regional and provincial governments were weakened. In hindsight, from our modern perspective, it all looks pretty great. Just the type of reform Austria needed to bring it into the modern era. But that's not what most people at the time saw. Joseph was not a good politician. He didn't carefully build alliances within the elite or try to sell people on his reforms. He just issued decrees. And he was impatient. He would start on a new reform initiative as soon as he finished writing the previous one. Nobles and clergy were almost universally infuriated. With so many radical reforms coming at such a rapid pace, almost every powerful person in Habsburg territory was losing out or having their interests threatened by at least some of Joseph's policies. And with the central government suddenly asserting control over so many areas of public policy, there was administrative chaos. You might think at least the common people among Joseph's subjects supported reform. After all, they were the ones who theoretically benefited the most, but that wasn't the case. 18th century commoners didn't have some mass press informing them about what was going on in politics. The only institution in the empire really capable of disseminating information to the masses was the church, and the church felt under attack by Joseph's policies and certainly did not put a positive spin on what was happening. Average people's experience of Joseph's rule was mostly just that their lives were suddenly disrupted and the most important institution in their communities, the church, was under threat. With blinding speed, Joseph had alienated almost all of his subjects. To make matters worse, he was just as energetic in asserting himself internationally as he was at home. 
he launched an expensive invasion of the Ottoman Empire, and pushed back against Prussian power so hard that it made him look like the aggressor, and the warmongering Frederick the Great look like the aggrieved party. From top to bottom, people in the Habsburg lands were fed up with Joseph's radical domestic policies and unwilling to give up their money and their men to feed his aggression abroad. In 1790, the Habsburg holdings in the Low Countries rose up in rebellion, declaring themselves the United Belgian States. In some ways, this so-called Brabantine Revolution resembled the French Revolution. There were secret revolutionary societies, pamphlets, tricolor cockades, and even a little good old spontaneous mob violence. But these similarities are somewhat superficial. Much of the motivation for this revolution was conservative. Many of the Belgian rebels were motivated by a desire to defend the Catholic Church, or feudal privilege. Joseph made peace with the Ottomans and turned his armies on Belgium. The Brabantine Revolution would soon be under control, but it looks like Joseph's problems were only beginning. Hungary was on the brink of its own rebellion, and there was low-scale political violence breaking out in other Habsburg realms as well. With his entire regime at a crossroads, an exhaustive Joseph died in February of 1790. He was succeeded by his brother, Leopold II, who quickly stabilized the situation by rolling back most of Joseph's reforms. That was what was going on in the Habsburg territories on the eve of the Napoleonic Wars. Bruised by internal strife and military failures, and looking for a way to handle the rise of new international rivals. This was certainly no golden age for Austria, but they'd survived, and in the course of facing these challenges, they'd passed reforms that would help the empire fight Napoleon and survive another century. So that's the core of the Habsburg Empire, the lands ruled directly by the Habsburg family. But as a lot of you know, the Habsburgs played another important role in European politics, as emperors of the Holy Roman Empire. So what exactly does that mean? The Holy Roman Empire lasted a thousand years, and it was many things over the course of its history. In the period we're talking about, it was basically a loose confederation of independent states in the area of modern Germany, Austria, and the Czech Republic, and a little bit of Western Poland. Think of it like the European Union, or NATO, but with a little medieval flair, and even more complicated internal politics. You might remember in episode 2, I said Italy was a mess politically. Well, the Holy Roman Empire was really a mess. To put it in perspective, there were almost 300 sovereign states within the empire. Compare that to only 195 sovereign states in the entire world today. Some of those states were decent-sized by 18th century European standards, most notably the South German states. Going west to east between the French and Austrian border, they are Baden, Württemberg, and Bavaria. In eastern Germany, Saxony, which had the unfortunate position right between Prussia and Austria, was also a minor power in its own right. Hanover was the largest state in northwestern Germany. In 1714, the British Queen died without an heir, and Hanover's ruler inherited the British crown. So, Hanover functioned as a British outpost on the continent until the 19th century. Prussia was technically a member of the empire as well, but as a great power, the Prussians generally ignored the empire and just followed their own course. Most imperial states were smaller, some much smaller. States of the empire included Catholic dioceses, small trading towns, even monasteries that were technically independent sovereign states. Some were even just the land holdings of one noble family, often no bigger than a modern family farm, but legally just as much a country as France or Britain. These little states survived because they were protected by the rest of the empire, and by the power of the Habsburg Emperor. 
The internal politics of the Holy Roman Empire were so complicated and obscure that even most people who lived within it did not fully understand them. I don't want to get bogged down in the various arcane points of its constitution. For our purposes, the main thing to understand is that, in theory, the heads of imperial states voted on policy. Even the position of emperor was elected. However, by the period we're talking about, Habsburg influence over the empire had become very well entrenched. Elections were mere formalities. It had been two centuries since the non-Habsburg ruled the empire. Still, the emperor didn't rule over the member states directly. He always had to play politics and try to keep them happy. Every once in a while, the imperial parliament would defy the emperor on one issue or another, but there was never any serious question of who was really in control. When we're talking about 18th century Germany, don't imagine the wealthy, dynamic place we know today. This was still a quiet, traditional part of the world. The power of the emperor stopped the German states from fighting each other, but most of them were too small to do much of anything else. Few had much in the way of armed forces, they relied on the emperor for that. There were individually wealthy German cities and provinces, but all the political divisions kept the region from developing into a serious commercial center. The educated middle class was growing, particularly in big cities and in the port towns on the North Sea. But this wasn't the Netherlands. They had to stay mostly underground and had little influence over politics. By the eve of the French Revolution, the political structures of the Holy Roman Empire hadn't changed very much over the centuries. But the political reality had. Somehow, from among the small, weak states of the empire, from under the influence of the mighty Habsburgs, a new great power had risen up. Prussia. During the Thirty Years' War of the mid-17th century, Brandenburg, the state that would become Prussia, was just another of the medium-sized imperial states, probably less powerful than Saxony or Bavaria. Brandenburg suffered tremendously during the war. Their small army was quickly worn down to almost nothing, so the rulers of Brandenburg had to watch helplessly as rival armies roved over their land, sowing destruction and stripping it bare of food and supplies. After the war, Brandenburg, later Prussia, had a string of competent rulers who learned a lesson from this experience. Their state was poor, but if they were to defend it, they would have to be powerful enough to stand on their own and not rely on the emperor. To this end, they carefully marshaled Prussia's limited resources to build up a professional standing army and the administrative and taxation system necessary to support it. Through diplomacy and conquest, they seized as much territory as they could without angering the emperor. Even today, the mention of Prussia calls to mind harsh Spartan militarism and an iron discipline. This was the era in which that stereotype was born, the late 17th and early 18th century, and it's a stereotype the Prussians deserved. There was a strong sense of service among Prussian aristocrats. In most countries, the upper echelons of the nobility considered military service beneath them. This was not so in Prussia, so despite their size, they drew from a big pool of potential officers, all of whom were well-trained at state expense. The men were trained well, too. Notoriously harsh Prussian discipline and training broke new recruits down and then built them up into the best soldiers of the Enlightenment era. And it was a huge army relative to Prussia's size. By the mid-18th century, one out of every 30 Prussian men was in uniform. The average for the rest of Europe was about one out of every hundred. The old joke is that Prussia was an army with a state rather than a state with an army, and I think there's something to it. Levying the taxes to pay for this, and managing that much manpower, was quite an achievement, and it was made possible by the type of centralizing, modernizing reforms we've been talking about. 
Essentially, the Prussian central government was able to get the nobility on board with this by making them feel like they were part of the project, sharing in Prussia's glory, and by giving them more power over their peasants. The Prussian state was making huge gains, but you would not want to be an average person living there during this time period. These trends of Prussian state-building and militarism saw their ultimate expression in Frederick II, usually called Frederick the Great. Frederick pursued and expanded these policies initiated by his predecessors, but with one key difference. His father and grandfather were very conscious of the limits of Prussian resources and the massive expense of the military. They did not want to see the armies they'd built up so carefully destroyed in bloody wars. Frederick did not have the same scruples. When Frederick took the throne in 1740, he declared, quote, I intend to either assert my great power status or see everything go to ruins, so that the very name of Prussia will be buried with me. True to his word, he almost immediately launched an unprovoked invasion of Austria. This would come to be called the War of the Austrian Secession. Frederick's goal was to annex Silesia, one of the wealthiest regions in Central Europe. His troops stormed in and occupied the province, ruthlessly stripping it of wealth to fund the war effort, and daring the Austrians to take it back. Almost all of Europe joined in the war. Most importantly, France, Britain, and Spain on Prussia's side, and Russia on Austria's. Much to everyone's surprise, not only did Prussia manage to hold on to Silesia, it was Prussia and Britain who carried the day while the French and Spanish militaries underperformed. It was clear proof that the older powers were in decline. Britain was on the rise, and Prussia had arrived among the great powers. After nearly eight bloody years, the war ended in an awkward peace. The treaty ending the war satisfied no one, but all the combatants were low on money and manpower and needed a break. And several powers on both sides had become so dissatisfied with their allies' conduct that they no longer wished to fight on the same side. The uneasy peace held for six years, ending with the outbreak of the Seven Years' War. Americans might know it better as the French and Indian War. Again, the war started with Prussia storming into a rich border region, this time Saxony, and ruthlessly exploiting it. In the diplomatic shuffling between the wars, France had switched sides and joined Austria and Russia in coming to Saxony's defense. Prussia was under threat from three directions, with no great power ally on the European mainland. Amazingly, and with the help of some extremely generous subsidies from Britain, Frederick the Great's armies repeatedly staved off disaster and kept the enemy armies at bay. This war dragged on too, for seven years as you may have guessed, until finally, unable to destroy the Prussians and unable to match the financial resources of Britain, Austria and her allies sued for peace. In the ensuing treaty, Frederick was forced to restore Saxony as an independent state, but he held on to Silesia, and Prussia's great power status was confirmed. Frederick II died in 1786, which is kind of a shame from a narrative standpoint because it's fun to imagine how he might have reacted to the revolution in France. He had done much to reform the Prussian government, but the system he introduced relied on having a dynamic, talented king at the top, and his successor, Frederick William II, was not up to the task. The quality of administration declined. Frederick's wars had all but destroyed the military carefully built up by his predecessors. It was rebuilt quickly, the Prussian system of training and recruitment was still the best in Europe, but it wasn't the same. Almost an entire generation of talented officers and soldiers had been lost, along with the traditions and experience they carried with them. Still, Prussia on the eve of the French Revolution was riding high. They were flexing their muscles abroad, 
As you might remember, they were the ones the Dutch government called on to suppress the Patriots. The army was diminished from its glory days, but it was rebuilding fast, and had the best reputation in Europe. Prussia is a great example of what was possible for a country that was successful at modernizing and centralizing authority. Their neighbor to the east, Poland, is a good cautionary tale of what happened to countries who did not reform. Poland had been one of the greatest powers in Eastern Europe in preceding centuries. But by the late 18th century, its government was so dysfunctional that its rivals were able to openly seize its territory unchallenged. By 1795, there was nothing left to seize. Poland had been erased from the map. The Polish nobility was traditionally the most politically powerful anywhere in Europe. The king of Poland was not a hereditary position. They were elected by the nobility. Once elected, the king was practically a figurehead. He could do little without the consent of an assembly of nobles, called the Sejm, basically the equivalent of the British House of Lords. Sejms were huge institutions, governed by very complex rules. The principle of total consensus was sacrosanct, which made it very difficult to get anything done. This also made it easy for foreign powers to influence the government. If, say, the Prussian government didn't want a certain piece of legislation to pass, all they would have to do is bribe or influence one Polish nobleman to use his veto and scuttle it. With the central government frequently paralyzed, factions of nobles fought each other for power in frequent civil wars, often supported by rival foreign powers. The Polish state stayed weak and divided while its rivals grew stronger. In 1772, the power disparity grew so great that Russia, Austria, and Prussia conspired to jointly seize Polish territory on their respective borders. The Polish government was too weak and too compromised by foreign influence to stop them. This event is referred to as the First Partition of Poland. There will be two more before our story ends. Nobles had a lot of rights in Polish society, but this wasn't some enlightened republic. Commoners in Poland had it much worse than in many other European societies. However, there were some among the Polish nobility who wanted to change things. Influenced by the Enlightenment, some liberal aristocrats thought they could save the country by giving up some of their feudal privileges. Not only to a strong central government, but also to give more rights to the common people. They hoped this would rally the population around the government to defend an independent Poland. It's an interesting idea, and they actually did have some success in reforming the government. Unfortunately for the liberal nobles, these successes came too late to preserve Polish independence. However, they did create a link between the ideals of liberty and progress and the concept of Polish nationhood. This link would inspire future Polish patriots and contribute to a Polish national identity that would survive foreign occupation. While Poland declined, her greatest rival to the east, Russia, grew by leaps and bounds. In the early 17th century, Russia was so weak and so unimportant to European affairs, many Western European powers didn't even bother sending a permanent ambassador to the Russian court. Russia was physically peripheral to Europe, and many Europeans thought of it as metaphorically peripheral too, barbaric and only half-civilized. A place that maybe had more in common with its so-called backwards neighbors in Central Asia than with the supposedly modern progressive West. They may have had a point in the Middle Ages, but by the late 18th century, Russia had caught up to the Western powers by many measures. But then as now, the Russians did not get any respect. The perception of Russia as a backwards place stubbornly lingered long after it was no longer accurate. Perhaps it still does. After Britain, 
Russia is probably more responsible than any other nation for defeating Napoleon, and let me disabuse you of the notion that they did so with dumb brute force, or that their victory really belongs to the Russian winter. By the late 18th century, the Russian government and military were very capable, easily among the best in Europe. They beat Napoleon fair and square, and it took a tremendous effort. That said, Russia had problems. Its huge area, low population density, and lack of international commerce meant its bourgeoisie developed late and remained relatively small. Enlightenment ideas arrived there late and spread less widely than elsewhere, mostly among a small elite. Russia was more dragged into the future by powerful, forward-thinking leaders than pushed by some groundswell from the population. The two most important of these modernizers were Peter the Great and Catherine the Great. Peter ruled for an incredible 43 years in the late 17th and early 18th century. I talked about him a little bit last time, and he's a bit outside our scope, so I won't dwell on him too much, but he was a remarkable ruler who took on the nobility head-on and massively increased the power of the central government. Peter had huge international ambitions as well. The foreign policy priorities he set have been taken up by almost every subsequent Russian government, even up until today. He sought to make Russia the dominant power in the Baltic Sea and the Black Sea, and to gain a position on the geopolitical stage as one of the European great powers. To these ends, he built up the first permanent Russian navy and won important military victories against Russia's traditional rivals in the Baltic, Sweden, and in the Black Sea, the Ottomans. He also increased what we might today call soft power by building an architecturally stunning modern new capital at St. Petersburg. None of Peter's successors quite filled his shoes, but there would be no going back to the old feudal Russia. Peter's rule had been too long and too successful, and of course, he'd crushed any opposition too mercilessly. It wasn't until Catherine II took the throne in 1762 that a Russian ruler truly took on the mantle of Peter the Great. And I mean it literally when I say took the throne. The Russian court was often unstable, and true to form, Catherine came to power in a coup, in which the previous emperor, her husband, was assassinated. To lay my cards on the table, in my opinion, Catherine is much more deserving of the sobriquet The Great than Prussia's Frederick II. As a foreign-born woman who seized power through violence, she was an unlikely ruler with little legitimacy, but she navigated Russia's dangerous politics brilliantly. Catherine was interested in the Enlightenment. She corresponded and occasionally crossed intellectual swords with figures like Voltaire and Diderot. Her court attracted intellectuals from all over the world. However, she was not an idealist. Unlike her more reckless contemporary, Joseph II of Austria, Catherine never became so carried away in incorporating Enlightenment principles into her government that she lost sight of what was politically possible. I think her enthusiasm for the Enlightenment was genuine, but she was a realist who never put principle before practicality. She was also image-conscious and clearly aware of the propaganda benefits that came with painting herself as an enlightened ruler. Catherine's regime was seen as a golden age for Russia. The government and the military were reformed and improved. New educational institutions were founded. Perhaps most importantly, the financial system was modernized, enabling the government to borrow and spend with more flexibility. The country expanded as well, mostly south, taking land around the Black Sea, and west, swallowing up much of Poland. It may have been a golden age, but it was not a time of peace. Under Catherine, Russia fought a war with Persia, two with the Ottomans, it was involved with Frederick the Great's wars, meddled in Polish affairs, and put down several rebellions within its own borders. 
If anything, this constant warfare sharpened the Russian army rather than wearing it down. By the 1790s, Russian officers and men were experienced. Incompetent leaders had been weeded out. After France, the Russian army had the best artillery and medical branches in the world. The infantry and cavalry were probably not the best in Europe, but their strong performance in the wars against Frederick the Great had surprised everyone. Europe had been expecting some barbarian horde, but the Russian army looked just like their counterparts, fought in accordance with the latest European doctrines, and were better organized than some of their Western opponents. It was Frederick the Great's army who gained a reputation for brutality, not the supposedly barbaric Russians. In 1770, the Russian navy stunned the world by sailing all the way from the Baltic to the Mediterranean and devastating the surprised Ottoman fleet in a single battle. It was a clear sign of new foreign policy ambitions. With the dominance of the Black Sea secured, Russia was expanding her horizons and seeking influence in the Mediterranean. So, when Russia enters our story in 1798, they will be a formidable force at the height of their power with ever-expanding ambitions. They had a long, hard fight ahead of them before the Cossacks would parade through the streets of Paris in 1814, but I think we can already see the seeds of that victory by the time Catherine the Great died in 1796. I'll close out this episode by talking briefly about the countries that lost the most in Russia's rise, the Ottoman Empire and Sweden. Believe it or not, progressive, neutral Sweden was actually a significant military power in the 17th century. They were one of the first places in Europe to embrace absolutist principles, and the Swedish government used the money and power that gave them to build up a strong modern military that was briefly the most feared force in northern Europe. However, even with a powerful, competent central government making the most of every national resource, Sweden was just too small to truly compete with the great powers. The inevitable fall came under King Charles XII, whose foreign policy was so irrationally aggressive some historians have speculated that he was mentally ill. Crazy or not, Charles actually was not bad as a military leader, but his ambitions were far beyond his kingdom's capabilities. His constant wars pushed Sweden's resources and manpower to the breaking point. He died in battle in 1718, and in the wake of his death, the war-weary Swedish nobility seized a great deal of political power from the crown. No future Swedish king would have the power to wage such ruinous wars. So, by 1789, the Swedish military was a shadow of its former self, but still nothing to sneeze at, particularly the navy. The concurrent decline of the Ottoman Empire was less graceful. The Ottomans had been the single greatest global power of the 16th century, unmatched militarily and commercially, and with the dazzling cultural and intellectual achievements to match. Constantinople, as it was still officially called, could plausibly claim to be the center of the world. But the empire seemed to reach its natural limit in the 17th century. With Western Europe colonizing the Americas and opening sea routes to the east, the Atlantic began to replace the Mediterranean as the most important venue of international trade. Commerce and the cultural and intellectual vitality it brings moved west, so to the center of the world. Ottoman power stopped growing. By the end of the 17th century, it was in full retreat. While the European powers were centralizing and streamlining their governments, Ottoman administration was actually becoming more decentralized and bloated. By 1789, the empire was much diminished, but it still sprawled over a huge territory, including modern-day Turkey, the Balkans, Greece, the Middle East, and North Africa. But, in the further reaches of the empire, 
local elites were paying less and less attention to the central government. In particular, Egypt and North Africa were beginning to look less like Ottoman provinces and more like independent states loosely affiliated with the central government. In the capital, the court was divided into competing factions, who often seemed too preoccupied with backbiting and petty intrigues to govern. The military was declining too. The elite standing army of the central government, the famous Janissaries, had devolved into a pampered faction of courtiers and bureaucrats. Most of the Ottoman army was made up of regional militias and irregular troops who fought for loot. Very few soldiers were trained, equipped, or organized according to modern methods. The situation at sea was not much better. Almost the entire fleet was dangerously outdated. The other great powers were well aware of this weakness. The Ottomans' old rivals attempted to take advantage. The Russians grabbed huge swaths of territory. The Austrians were less successful. Even faraway Britain and France had their eyes on Ottoman territory. Every great power viewed the situation warily. They each had their own dreams of carving up the Middle East and North Africa, but none wanted to see their rivals benefit too much from the empire's fall. Still, we shouldn't overstate Ottoman weakness. They may have been down, but they were far from out. After all, the Ottoman state wasn't finally done in until 1917. Not every Ottoman administrator was self-interested or incompetent. There were plenty of capable people in the government who struggled hard against the downward trend, some were even successful at carrying out a few limited reforms, or at least just holding things together, but it was an uphill battle. Despite these efforts, the Ottoman government barely limped along through the Napoleonic Wars. Well, that was a lot of ground to cover. There are many places I wish I could have gone into more detail, but this is the longest episode of the show ever, so I'll restrain myself. If I missed something you'd like to hear more about, you can always contribute to the fundraiser and submit a topic suggestion for the bonus episode at patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon. Next week, we'll be talking about Napoleonic France's great nemesis, the Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Thanks for joining me. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of Ancient Egypt.